the PhD isn't the thing that defines you. Similarly, the master's isn't the thing that defines you. It's the way that you approach problems and it's your positivity and it's your self-belief. And I think those are the things that are going to be most important in making a successful stab at uh, going independent or being a freelancer. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Alistair Graham and Alistair's been on the podcast a couple of times now talking about different aspects of the earth observation industry and today he's agreed to come along and share his story about how he got started out as, as being a self-employed consultant in, in the earth observation sector. So he's going to share a whole bunch of things he did at the start, what his process looked like, what his thought process looked like, uh, how he got himself ready, what he's learned along the way, and a few bits of advice for people that are, are thinking that this might be something for them. Before we get into the conversation today, I, w- I want to tell you about PlaceKey. So, so this is interesting. PlaceKey is not an organization as such. It's not a company. It's, it's not a service. It's at the moment anyway, it's just an idea. And the idea is to create a unique identifier for every geographic area in the world. So there's about 500 organizations and businesses supporting this idea, supporting the concept of, of creating this unique identifier and they're hoping to create a new industry standard around it. So so what is PlaceKey? There's a lot of sort of mystery at the moment about how this is going to be actually implemented. But the idea here, again, is this universal place ID that standardizes physical places. So data from different data sources can be more easily shared, matched, and located. And I guess the promise here is less time cleaning data, more time innovating, more time solving the world's problems. If this sounds like something that you would like to be involved in or want to find out more about, go to placekey.io. Hi Alistair, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about being self-employed in the earth observation sector, so the earth observation industry. And I think perhaps, perhaps before we dive into the into the conversation around this, I think it'd be really great if you could just take a couple of minutes just to introduce yourself to the audience and, and then we'll go from there. Hi Daniel, it's great to be back. I'm becoming a bit of a regular here, aren't I? Yeah, so I'm Alistair Graham and I am an independent consultant around earth observation and open data, open systems, things like that. My company's called Jogger. I'm also the current chair of the committee for the British Association of Remote Sensing Companies and I sit on the OSGO UK committee as well. And some of you might know me from the Seen From Above podcast. Uh, so, so that's me, really. So I, I notice in front of your name, you have a PhD. Talk us through that just a little bit. What is it and what was involved in it? And, and I guess towards the end, if you could explain how that has impacted your decision to become self-employed. Okay, yeah, so that's going back a while now. Uh, so my PhD was from UCL, so University College London, and it was the geography department I was based in. Uh, the PhD itself was looking at um, synthetic aperture radar and how the uh, radar waves interact with moisture both in the canopy and the soil around a, a potato crop. Um, so the, the idea was, can you improve irrigation uh, monitoring or irrigation? So how has it influenced my decision to become self-employed? I guess the main thing is that it gave me a confidence that 
if I had a problem, I could look at it in different ways and sort of break that problem down and work out how to to fix it. And uh, that's one of the things I think I would definitely say is if you're going to try and either go freelance or, or self-employed through a company like I have, um, then what you really need to be able to have in the first instance is confidence in yourself and your ability to deal with the types of things that might get thrown at you. I think too, having a PhD is also a status symbol, right? It says to the world around you, hey, I've spent a significant amount of time, you know, studying this, learning this, developing my skills in this area. Would you imagine that you could get the same kind of jobs that you're getting today if you have a master's? Okay, that's an interesting one. So I don't look at it as as a thing that I promote myself as having. I don't, I, to me, it's just um, it's a piece of paper. Really, I can't stress this enough. For me, the difference between maybe a master's and a PhD is that you think about things in a slightly different way once you've done the PhD. That's, that, for me, that's the only difference. You might have some additional technical skills and you'll have a piece of paper that some people might... Um, think more highly of but really that's that's not how I see myself I guess in terms of your question about whether I would be doing the same types of work that's an interesting one so I've now had sort of 15 odd years of experience post PhD and I wouldn't say that any of my work now is is given to me or, or I win it based on my PhD I would say it's based on my experience and uh, the way that I can communicate what I will be doing for any individual client. So, yeah, if you want to do a PhD, a PhD is really useful. And like I say, it will give you this this different way of thinking about um, a problem or approaching a problem. But I wouldn't say it's the be all and end all. And certainly these days, with so much of Earth observation being influenced by the tech sector, it, it, it swings and roundabouts, really, in terms of whether it's going to be a massive benefit to you if you want to go freelance or, or as an independent. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking to, taking the time to, see, to cl- clarify your, your thoughts around that, because I, I think that this is something people will, will think about. and They'll listen to you and say, well, it's easy for that guy. He's got a PhD. I only have a master's or I only have a bachelor's and, and want to know if this is still possible for them. Yeah. Uh, so I would say it's definitely possible. Um, it. It's really interesting. So I, I've set up Jogger in 2013. And so I've been trading for seven years or so. Um, and I, I guess really what I want to say here is that if you have a, an MSc, then you're going to have skills that are totally different now compared to the skills that uh, were, were around in, in 2013. So having a PhD from some time in the past doesn't really change whether or not someone now is going to be more or less suitable for setting up on their own. Similarly, if you have a PhD now, the same things are going to stand as that I've just said. You're going to have a a slightly different way of thinking about things. You're going to have slightly different experience in terms of you've done those additional years of uh, academic study, and you will have some additional technical skills. But if you've come out from a university with an MSc, and or maybe you've done one or two years post MSc working for a larger company and you think, okay, now's the time that I really want to go freelance or independent, then the skills you have will be enough to get you started. And once you get started, it's the experience that you'll you'll gather. And it might be that, uh, and I find this quite often, particularly in earth observation, it seems, and it might be in other sectors as well, 
that a lot of the independents and the freelancers start to clump together. And so we talk to each other. And so it might be that, you know, if one person has an MSc and another person has a PhD and there's a, an issue with a piece of work or something, you could just say, oh, I'm really sorry, but how would you approach this? And, it, and most people generally in life are really happy to help someone else. If they've got a skill that they think that would benefit someone else, even if it's sort of a little bit in the same commercial domain, they'll still take some time and say, okay, well, have you thought about it in this way? And I think really having a, a PhD versus having a master's really comes down to personal preference as to how you want your uh, academic studies to go. I mean, when I did my PhD, I thought I was going to be an academic for the rest of my life. And then by the time I'd finished that and a couple of postdocs, I was ready for the commercial world. So the PhD isn't the thing that defines you. Similarly, the master's isn't the thing that defines you. It's the way that you approach problems and it's your positivity and it's your self-belief. And I think those are the things that are going to be most important in making a successful stab at uh, going independent or being a freelancer. I, th I think you covered a lot of really, really important topics here. And the first one I'd like to sort of highlight a little bit is that idea that you, there's a community of our out there of people doing freelance work of being independent consultants that you can draw on because when you're working in an organization that that idea of sparring or that ability to just you know tap someone on the shoulder and say hey I've got a problem can you help me I think that people see that as being a barrier to entry if you go out by yourself you might not necessarily have that community so, so that's really positive to hear that the community is supportive in, in that way um, you, you talked a little bit about your PhD which was really great and, and then you, you talked about the, the start you were saying I, I thought I was going to be an academic forever forever and then you did a couple of postdocs you moved out into the um, into the world worked for an organization what made you decide that okay working for an organization being an employee is not right for me <laughs> um, so this is quite interesting because there's a number of different things that came together in 2013 that made my going independent um, a thing so really I had wanted to work for myself for ages um, and I'd, I'd sort of thought about all sorts of different things like running a sandwich shop and all, all of these other crazy things. It was just a case of I, I really like the autonomy. Uh, I like to be able to control when I work and how I work and what I'm working on, who I'm working for. So that was a massive driver and, and that had been there ever since sort of doing my PhD when I had total autonomy over everything. And and I wasn't really finding that autonomy in any of the jobs that I had either the postdocs or the uh, working for the larger organizations. Um, there were also some some personal uh, sort of family issues that came up in 2013 as well that meant that it was time for a switch of, of job anyway. Um, and that, but I still needed to have an income. And so that this potential going independent was going to be one way of doing it. And then thirdly, there was such a huge shift that was happening in Earth observation um, around so that 2010 to 2015 type time. And it's sort of it's still going on now, but it's slightly changing in, in its focus. But there was a massive shift in terms of all of the Copernicus data being made available coming online. There was uh, huge amounts of funding going into things like there's something called the Satellite Applications Catapult in the UK, which is primarily designed to try and support the Earth observation and other uh, satellite-based industries. Uh, and that's only uh, 15 miles or so down the road from me. There was a huge upsurge in, in scientific and engineering-type 
funding and opportunities around Oxford, where I'm based. And so it, it seemed like the right time, both personally and in terms of the Earth observation sector. And it fulfilled that that sort of nagging voice at the back of my head about how I wanted to, to work for myself. So that's how Jogger came about, was all of those th- things happened together at the same time in 2013. Okay, so we've got this massive confluence of, of things that are leading you or pushing you in this direction of, of being self-employed. What do you then do? Do you just go and start a website and, and jobs roll in? <laughs> what, how, did, how did it work? Well, if you're not me, that, that might work. Yeah, I'm very much the type of personality who likes to plan everything. And some would say that maybe I plan things too long and then miss the opportunity slightly. But um, yeah, so I was able to spend a few months having resigned from my previous job, uh, I spent a few months um, just trying to get my head together in terms of what I would need to make a successful business. And so I got all these books out of the library. I started going on the uh, websites of various different sort of how to start your own business uh, type gurus. I there was something at the time called uh, Oxford Business Link, I think, or the UK Business Link, which was again trying to give all sorts of um, sort of handy information to people starting up on their own. So uh, these weren't necessarily resources that were specific to Earth observation. They were more about setting up you know, things like being a plumber or an electrician or a cleaner or a sandwich shop or whatever. But they were all relevant in terms of just how do you work for yourself. And so I spent a couple of months, like I say, looking at all these various different things. And uh, I actually have in front of me, I've got an A5 notebook, which is half full of notes that I made back in 2013 uh, about all sorts of different aspects of how you set up a business. Because I wanted to make sure that if I was going to do this, that I didn't sort of mess it up within a year. Um, So... (laughs) four or five lines down from the first page in in capital letters is who will be my first customer and this was um something that was mentioned a lot in all of these various different resources was you as you're planning just think who will be your first customer and that is the thing i think i would that's the bit of advice i would give to anyone who's thinking of setting up on their own right now is you can go through all the cool ideas of what's my name, what's my logo, what sort of uh, software am I going to use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But really, where are you going to get your first paycheck from? That is the one thing you need to be focused on, absolutely laser focused um, from the beginning. In fact, before you even start. So I really like this, that, that you had such a strong focus on it as, as a business right from the start, as opposed to gathering data that you think you might need, um, spending money on software that you think you might need, spending money on branding or resources on branding and getting attention and marketing. You decided that the focus here needs to be as a business. So, And it's all that sort of boilerplate stuff that, that goes into making a business. It's the same, I think you mentioned, for plumbers, for builders, and for people working in earth observation. And I love that focus on who is going to be my first customer. So that, that was something that, that you put a lot of time and effort into thinking about. So who was your first customer and, and how did you get them as a customer? So my first customer was a a small um, environmental consultancy down on the Isle of Wight, and uh, which is an island just off the south coast of the UK. And they were looking for advice, really, about uh, how they could 
drive around the island and at the same time collect information on the quality of the roadside verges. Um, I can't remember what the reason was that they wanted to do this, but it was basically about um, mobile GIS and whether or not there could be any link between mobile GIS and Earth observation um, data and things like that. And it was a small piece of work. It was only, I think, five days, something like that maximum. And I got it through a personal link from one of the organizations that I'd previously worked from uh, worked for. And that was really interesting. So A, it was nerve-wracking, just being me um, and doing work for somebody without the backing of a whole organization and without other directors who might sort of deal with any issues that come up trying to work out whether I would get paid trying to make sure that I did a good job but also met all of the different requirements that that came in for that piece of work it was nerve-wracking but also by the time that I had finished it and I'd invoiced and I the, the day that I got my payment for that invoice it was absolutely amazing so this was within two months of, of my setting up the company. So that was a really good start. You know, I'd, I got some money in. I wasn't, <laughs> I had something to play with and I, I wasn't going to be in a negative amount of um, money or making a loss at the end of my first year's accounts. So that was, that was a definite positive. Well, what was your biggest learning coming out of that that first job? Communication, definitely. Communication. And that is the one thing that I work on every single job that I have because everybody communicates in different ways and what if someone said to you okay go and monitor the roadside verges you might think okay well it needs to be monitored in one way or using one type of technology or recording a certain type of information from that verge and it might not be the thing that um, the the client actually wants that they've got something in their head but they've not directly specified exactly what it is that they want so communication is absolutely key when you're working for yourself talk to your clients and then once you think you've got an idea of what you want to do talk to them again and clarify that what you think is what they think and if there's anything any tiny little bit that is outstanding or different between the two of you don't make the assumption that okay they'll probably be okay with this just keep talking and it and there's loads of ways of communicating you can either fire up little examples in, in of data, et cetera, or methods or whatever, and send a little video over to them or a, an animated uh, screenshot or something like that. You can pick up the phone, obviously, and talk to them. You can write really detailed, bullet-pointed uh, emails, but really make sure that your client and you understand exactly what needs to be done, what the scope is, and what the consequences might be of any change of that scope further down the line. Because I think that's another thing that uh, independents and freelancers do far too often is have a slightly woolly scope. And then someone legitimately, a client will come along and say, oh, could you just look at X, Y, or Z? That wasn't in the original scope. So you need to change your your costing based on that change of scope. But quite often, because the original scope wasn't tightly enough defined you're not able to do that and that really puts uh, pressure on the individual then to deliver something but without any additional payment for it 
I guess a lot of this comes with experience too, right? So the more you deal with people, the more you understand how you can communicate in different ways, what the expectations might be in a certain a certain industry or for a certain type of project. And I think too, perhaps in, in terms of writing those estimates, right, writing that scope of work, I think the more you do this, the, the better you get at it. Um, can you give us any hints or, or tips? Is there anything that you do religiously every time or have learned to do every time in terms of, of writing out that uh, scope of of work yeah so like i say it's sort of this communication thing so years ago when i was doing my phd there was a professor called clive agnew who i think he was professor of rivers rather than earth observation but i always remember he used to say if you were doing a presentation so this is like an academic presentation or something he said the way to structure your presentation would and this is this is a handy hint folks for for presentations as well as for running a business but um the way to structure a presentation is basically say what you're going to say, say it, and then say what you've just said so that you really reinforce the message. And I would definitely say that that is one way of working out the scope. So you'd go and talk to, say, a, a company that you're going to do some work for, listen to what they say the scope is, say the scope back to them, and then have a conversation about the scope that you've just both spoken about and do that every time to make sure that everyone's on the same page and it's it's really difficult the first time you do it particularly if you've you know if you know that you're relatively new as a freelancer and it might be that you're you haven't got a lot of time in the sector or whatever um so you haven't got loads of contacts so the people you're working for might be unknown to you and you might be unknown to them it is really hard to do that but before you leave any meeting where you're either deciding what's going to go in the contract or you're potentially signing the contract you really need to do this whole thing of define the scope state what the scope said redefine the scope and make sure everyone's happy with it i think it's interesting that we we find ourselves focusing so much on communication here how we communicate and making sure that both parties are, are talking the same language like we're both talking about the same scope of work we agree that these are the milestones and that w when we reach this point here then we will know that the the contract is finished because when you think about earth observation immediately my mind goes to the, the technical side of it right to segmenting images to looking at at data and discovering objects in there and then doing some analysis based on that but yeah here the focus is is so far anyway has been completely on on that conversation on on communication yeah and it's a t it's a total learning process like i wouldn't say i'm the best at communication at, you know and i've been doing this for seven years i would say every time i do it i learn more and uh, i improve more hopefully but it it is really key because it really matters if you're working for yourself so if you're working as part of a, a nebulous organization where there might be, I don't know, let's say 150 people behind you and you bid for a piece of work and you're bidding in at, I don't know, let's say a thousand pounds a day and suddenly the scope changes, well, you can quite easily say, okay, well, in order to make a profit, I'm going to give this work to that person over there who's only going to be charged out at 250 pounds a day. And I'll just give them a little bit of advice about what to do. And that's fine. But as an individual, any change of scope is basically a reduction in your fees that are coming in. And any reduction in the amount of money that you have coming in on any individual job actually 
makes a massive, massive difference in terms of the amount of money that you generate over the course of a year. And so you want to be ultra efficient, really, in terms of the jobs that you're doing. So technically, you want to be efficient to minimize any additional loss through to through things that can be really easily um, dealt with, like this uh, issue of communication. And I think a big part of communication, a big part of the, the scope of work is the pricing, right? How much is it going to cost? Um, and I think when you first start out, when you're doing something for the first time, it's really difficult to know what price to set on your services. How did, how did you go about it? Very first time I did it, finger in the air. I didn't really know. I knew roughly what I'd been charged out at for the two organizations I'd worked for previously. And I had a bit of a stab at it. And then I... I signed up for some free business advice clinic type things that were happening in Oxford. And I got really good piece of advice from a guy who'd spent, I think, 30, 35 years in the IT business. And he was saying, okay, well, you, you need to basically work out all the days that you're not going to be working. And that might be because you're trying to sell into a new job or you're trying to market your business or you're on holiday, or whatever. And then, so then you've got an idea of the number of days roughly per year that you're actually going to be working, then you need to look at all your costs that you have. And then you need to set the target amount of money that you want in terms of a total income over the year. And once you've done all of set all of those different parameters, then you're in a position to work out, okay, what day rate uh, am I going to need to charge in order to meet all of those different parameters. And I think this is this is one of the things that is actually really hard for people who work in organizations where every month they get a set amount of money coming into their bank account as their salary. I think it's really hard for them to, to see what's happening to independents and freelancers who basically get paid on a per contract, per invoice uh, method. And it might look that any individual who's doing a piece of work has a really high day rate, but they have to remember that that day rate isn't coming in every single day for every single month uh, in the same way that someone who gets a, a salary would. And so I, I do find I do take issue with people who, when they say, okay, so how much is it going to cost? And then they say, oh, that's a bit high. Do you think we can maybe reduce it by X amount? And quite often it'll be 10 to 15 to 20% uh, less than your actual day rate, which you should have at this point costed up properly. Um, so it should be a fair reflection of what you're worth and what you need in order to keep your life going uh, in the way that you want it to. And I, I really take issue with people that try and do this. I understand what they're coming from, particularly if they've got budgets and things that they need to manage. But at the same time, you're not going to go into a, I don't know, into a superstore and pick up know, a bag of rice or something and go, Oh, I really want this rice. But if you could just knock off 20%, that'd be really great. Oh, and, and this pasta over here, 20% off that as well. Would that be great? So it, it's I find it an unfortunate situation that quite often independents and freelancers have to justify their day rate. And we shouldn't be having to do that. Our day rate should, if you're, if you're good at what you're doing in terms of setting up your business, your day rate should be an accurate reflection of your value and uh, the amount that you require in order to meet your lifestyle. 
I think there's some really good advice there about costing things out. What, what does it actually cost to live and then trying to meet that target based on yeah. an, an estimate of, of number of work days throughout a month, a year, whatever. That, that sounds like a really good approach at the start. I, I could imagine that you start off in that way there and then sort of um, w with time, with experience, when you have more contact with other people in the community doing similar work, that you can kind of adjust those those levels as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so and the type of work that you're doing. So so certainly as you start to talk to others who are doing similar types of business, what you really want to be able to do is get everybody on a rough parity. I mean, everyone will have these slightly different day rates, but if say, I don't know, five independents were going for a piece of work and four of them were all coming in at, I don't know, let's say 500 pounds a day, and then someone, the, the, the fifth one came in at 100 pounds a day, you know that whoever's going to, be awarding that is going to look at the hundred pound and go, oh, value for money down there, and that really that really doesn't help the other four. Whereas if everybody was in a rough zone somewhere around four hundred to six hundred, then that really it helps make that that message that you're worth a certain amount and that those people who are working in the uh, sector are worth a certain amount and and are providing. A certain amount of value it, it really reinforces that message yeah for, for sure i think the more people that are doing it the, the more you sort of strengthen that message and say well this is this and then it becomes almost like an industry standard we expect to be charged x amount of, of dollars you know for, for this kind of task we, we, we touched yeah. on it a little bit before you talked about perhaps having a, a different pricing for for different kinds of tasks and i think it'd be really interesting to hear are there any kind of tasks or jobs or projects or employers, for that matter, that that you that you won't go near, that you won't touch, because you can it's it, because you can just see it's going to be problem problematic for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. So I would say personally, I've I've made a decision based on my environmental background that I I will not take on work in the defence sector or from the oil and gas sector. And I totally recognise that's where the money is at the moment, but um, which is sort of putting myself at a disadvantage. But if someone was to approach me um, from those sectors wanting uh, advice or something like that, I am quite happy to point them towards other independents that I know of within my network. And so it's, it, again, this is one of those things where I don't think as independents, we have the luxury of being selfish. We should we should be sharing out. If there are people who want to, to work in those sectors, and, and you know there are plenty of people who will, then that's fine. I am quite happy to pass that on. It's just a personal thing of mine that I, I don't really want to be working in those um, for sort of like personal uh, environmental ethics, I guess. Um, in terms of financing, yeah, I'm always willing to have conversations with um, anyone who, who's interested in, in taking up my services. I came across a startup, this must be about five years ago now, and they were they were absolutely brilliant. So they were a startup and had been trading for, I don't know, something like six months. I was relatively new in the sphere. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. And there was a piece of work that would have been worth, you know, a few grand. Um, so it, it wasn't huge, but at the same time, it wasn't to be sniffed at. And they came up with a really good idea of, okay, let's do a piece of work that will be like 500 quid, 600 quid, something like that. 
that will then see how we work together in terms of this communication that I've already talked about. It will see how I invoice and I will be able to see how quickly they pay. And it was a really good exercise for both parties, I think, um, but, but, but certainly for me, in just building up a level of trust between two different organizations, so Jogger and, and this other startup, in terms of how we might do business in the future. And, and from that, other contracts did come. So it was, and I've, I've tried to apply that model to a couple of other new clients that I've had since then. And actually, it does work really well that you, you have a really small piece of work that's relatively low risk to the independent or the freelancer and you know, relatively small budget to the, the client. And you just work together to see how it it might go in future. And then from there, you can start to build up into larger and larger contracts. I think that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's the, the idea here is that we can we, we can feel each other out, right? So we can try this yeah. thing. If it works, great. We can continue. We can we can move on. Um, how much of your work, or have have you seen more work coming fr- from existing clients? So oftentimes, if you think about selling a product, uh, people will say it's easier to sell a product to someone who's already brought from you. Um, and you know, if you go to McDonald's, for example, they call this upselling. Do you? actively do that so you do some work for a, a client you ah oh, okay that worked out really well that was a su- successful project but i can see that you need help over here or i could do this or i could do that how much of a part of your business is, is that side of things um personally i would say it's massive um so this this whole concept uh, of um getting rework back in uh, from an existing client is really big in certainly in this sector i think if you can help on an individual project or an inv- individual problem that a, a client has, then in all likelihood, similar types of projects or problems will arise in the future and you'll be able to help out again. Plus, like I say, it comes back to building these relationships with clients and, and having good communication, et cetera, et cetera. I have been asked since we've come, down, uh, come into lockdown um, with the, the global pa- pandemic, I have been asked how do I get new clients and i must admit this is a tricky one now because a lot of the ways that i was getting new clients was going to uh, in-person events and being able to either stand at the front and give a presentation about something and then uh, follow up with people individually about various different questions and then from there just sort of go oh okay that's interesting maybe we could work together etc cetera, etc cetera, and then follow through on that or it's that whole thing that I think loads of people around the world are missing, which is the let's grab a coffee and have a quick chat about this issue that you've got or this thing that I've mentioned that you're interested in, etc. And that's been another great way for me to get sort of new clients and additional work. Now, obviously, all of that has disappeared. Um, I think it's going to be much tougher on individuals because we're not really in a position to start spamming emails all over the place with marketing spiel etc or if we did i don't think it would be seen that favorably and so really the the concept of strengthening relationships with existing uh, clients um, is really the way forward i think for the at least for the next 12 months where you're going to want to make sure that you're doing really good work uh, for good clients and um, yeah just making sure that things are paved tentatively through the next 12 months. 
I'd really like to stay with the idea of getting new clients because you're right. I mean, that this is a big issue now with the lack of these in-person events due to the global pandemic. But you, you have a website, you have a social media presence, you're, you're active on Twitter, uh, you, you blog, and I've seen you on, on LinkedIn, for example. You also have this amazing podcast. Um, any of these, can you see any um, opportunities around any of these activities in terms of generating new business, of, of uh, getting contacts to, to new clients? Yeah, that's an interesting one. So I, I do have all of these online presents and I have, well, I think a reasonable amount of interaction um, through different channels. However, I personally currently use them as a way of raising my profile as to who I am and uh, sort of what I do and the types of thing, opinion, the types of opinions that I have on various different things around the earth observation sector. I've not actively tried to translate any of those different online presence into uh, work coming in. And I will be honest, I've, I don't think in the seven years that I've been doing, running Jogger, I don't think that I've actually managed to get any new clients coming directly through those. Although there might be one or two that have come through my web, website and then I've built up a, a relationship with th those clients. So I might be just mistaking where the, the first contact came from in terms of that. But generally, I don't see that as a way of, of getting clients. And I might be missing a trick here and I might be uh, mistaken in, in how useful all of those different online contacts would be. I think it's very hard to, to trace people, you know, back to, to the first point of contact. So, yeah. I mean, it's almost impossible. We, we put these things out into the world and I think for the most part it's really difficult to say exactly which one, you know, tip the scales in your favour that, you know, encourage them to visit your website that then led on to a relationship. And and this is assuming that the person can actually remember it, right? Like, oh, I saw that tweet yes. and that led me through this <laughs> rabbit hole and, and then all of a sudden you're working it at our, at our office. So I get it that, that, that that's really difficult. Um, so we've talked a lot about communication. We've talked a lot about the business side of it. Um, in Earth observation and geospatial, you know, this is a technology industry. Uh, I'd be curious to know what tools you use and, and if you ever run into the problem where you simply don't have access to a tool. Because you don't have access to a particular tool, you, can, you just don't take on certain projects. Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, okay. So I, as I, I think I mentioned at the beginning, um, I'm on OSGO UK's committee, which sort of demonstrates that I'm a big proponent of open source and open data. And, uh, I made the decision right at the beginning that Jogger was going to be an open source led, uh, business. And therefore I've only been using Ubuntu Linux, um, on, on all of my work machines, actually, um, for the entire seven years. And so I generally use things like QGIS and Saga GIS in terms of my processing GDAL at the command line. Um, and then in terms of doing sort of documents and things like that, I have a, um, I know it's not open source, but it's easy to use. I have a, a Google business account and so do everything through that, mainly because it means that I can access any of the documents I need from wherever I am, uh, whether I'm in someone's office or if I'm on leave and away and need, something needs to be done, uh, then I can access those documents. So so in terms of the, the very basics, it's as much online as possible. So Google 
business apps being the, the main one. And then in terms of the geospatial side of things, it's GDAL command line stuff, and then QGIS and Saga are the main ones, and then a little bit of Orpheo toolbox as well now and again, depending on the project. Now, in terms of things that I miss, I I don't know whether or not Erdas Imagine actually runs on Linux or not. But anyway, I wouldn't be able to afford a license. So I do miss that. I used to use that a lot in previous work, and it was really easy to use and very, very powerful and very extensible. Um, so that's definitely one thing I miss. The other thing that definitely, definitely stops me getting uh, work is the, the amount of job opportunities that state must be able to use ArcMap um, or ArcGIS as was. And again, so I don't use that. I haven't used it for, well, well over 10 years now. Um, and it's not, again, I don't think, I'm fairly sure it doesn't run on Linux. And it's not a piece of software that I would necessarily want to offer anyway. I, I prefer using all the open source stuff. But yeah, that often comes as a stipulation. Um, and it's so ingrained. It's a bit like having Microsoft Office, I guess, uh, being the de facto office software that everybody just talks about. I mean, ArcGIS is the de facto GIS software. But yeah, I that does stop me getting uh, pieces of work, I think. Or at least it stops me going for pieces of work. But I, I think the interesting thing here too is that um, despite that, despite the lack of access for whatever reason to, to these different tools, that you're still running a successful business, you're still getting jobs, and you know, you, you're still being able to trade as a self-employed person in the Earth observation space. Yeah, well, it, it shows the power of the um, open source community, really. Some of the tools that are out there now are that well, they're certainly all the ones I mentioned are as good uh, as some of the uh, proprietary tools. And a lot of the proprietary tools actually use the open source in the background anyway. But yeah, there's no reason why you can't use open source to run a business. That's, um, you know, lots of people do that. And that's perfectly fine. Uh, I guess one or two other things that like little asides that may now and again cause issues is if there's uh, little bits of software that only run on Windows. I haven't, I don't have any Windows machines um, in the business, and I haven't used Windows again probably for ten years or more. And so <laughs> now and again, I get asked questions, sort of technical questions, like, "Oh, we've got this uh, issue with a piece of data on this piece of software. How would you sort it out um, in Windows?" And I have to honestly go, "I have no idea because I don't know what Windows 10 looks like, let alone <laughs> what it does." So um, yeah, there, there are all sorts of little things that that come up every day. But like I say, you can create a successful business using whatever software you want to really, as, as long as it interacts well with the data. I think we've come a long way in the conversation now. And I want to sort of move towards the, the advice bit of, of this episode. And I'm wondering what advice would you give to someone today if they were wanting to be self-employed in the earth observation space? I would say do it, but think about it for a little bit beforehand. So quite often the 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 way that people look at this type of thing is that they will sort of get really excited and go, oh yeah, I'm going to offer these services and I'm going to make um, loads of money every year. And the reality is that you're going to spend most of your time being a salesperson trying to convince people to give you the, <laughs> that money. But at the same time, there are so... The, the, 
the barrier to entry into Earth observation at the moment is the lowest it's been for, well, since I've been in the sector. And being able to know how to use uh, some of the open source tools in particular, but also the proprietary tools, being able to know how to code in Python or R, being able to know how to get access to the open data, that just gives you, it gives you such a good platform to start from that then it's going to all be about building your network. That is going to be the main thing is building up contacts, making sure those contacts are happy with the type of work that you do, or at least know that you exist and can point you at other potential clients. So those, those, yeah, I guess those are the main things are go for it. Make sure your network of contacts is really good. Make sure that your software and everything else is, is well planned, thought through and planned out and make sure that you're, you're confident because, you know, there, there's so many opportunities in earth observation at the moment. Thank you, Alistair. I, I really appreciate your time and I appreciate you being so open and honest about your business. So when you start a business, it's a very personal thing. In fact, I think sometimes it's almost impossible to separate the business from the person. So I, I appreciate you sort of drawing back the curtain and letting us look inside and, and walking us through what it was like to start and, and where you are at today. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Before I let you go, is there anywhere where the listeners can go if they want to reach out to you, if they want to um, hear more about your business, or if they just want to continue the, this conversation? Yeah, so there's probably three main ways. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at AJG Jogger, and Jogger is G-E-O-G-E-R. Uh, so you can uh, send me a message there or go to jogger.co.uk, which is my website. You can find out a bit more about my business there. And then if you just want to hear my opinions, basically, uh, and that of my co-host, Andrew, on the uh, Scene From Above podcast, then check out seenfromabove.org. Thanks again, Alistair. I really appreciate it. Cool. Thank you very much. At the start of this episode, I mentioned PlaceKey. And I said that it wasn't an organization and, it, and it's not a business. It's, it's more of an idea at this stage, but the idea is really cool. The idea is to create a new industry standard around the way we join different data sets spatially. So there's a lot of questions at the moment still around the implementation of this, but the concept is being backed by a huge amount of companies and organizations. If this sounds interesting to you, if you'd like to be involved, if you'd like to find out more, I would encourage you to go along to placekey.io and, and check it out for yourself. Just before I say goodbye, I, I want to mention a few of the really big things that I got out of this, this conversation with Alistair. The first one for me was uh, that it had to be a business, right? So he was making a business and he had that strong focus on building a business first. In fact, one of the first things he did was to figure out who his first client was going to be. And then another thing that, that really shone through in this conversation, at least for me, was the focus on communication. We spent most of the conversation talking about how communication between Alistair and his clients was was key to successful business relationships, to maintaining those relationships. And those relationships are actually what his business is based on. And they continue to generate revenue for him because he continues to get projects based on the clients that he's got already because he has a good relationship with them. 
Another thing I found really interesting was that he could build an entire business based on open source tools. So it wasn't necessarily the tools that were holding him back. He did mention that because he had decided to to only use open source software in his business, that there were projects that he couldn't apply for, which is fair enough. But I think the fact that he can do it, that he can have a successful business based on open source products, free software that we all have access to is absolutely incredible. Okay, those are just a couple of key points there that I wanted to highlight that I found particularly interesting. I hope this conversation has helped you. If you're sitting sitting out there wondering if you can make a goal of it, if you can be self-employed in the earth observation industry, I really hope this that this has given you something to think about and perhaps a, a bit of direction as well for how you might get started. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel been a pleasure being your host again this week thank you so much for tuning in it's, it's much appreciated if you want to reach out to me i'm most active on twitter just look for mapscaping and you can also find me on linkedin those two platforms seem to be where where i find myself spending most of my time yeah if you want to get a hold of me there's lots of places to do it and i would love to hear from you okay that's it from me we'll talk again next week bye